0: Cribs was a TV show that first aired in September of 2000. It took its viewers on tours of the residences of famous people. The show spun off various versions. There was MTV Cribs for hipsters, there was a CMT Cribs for country music fans, and there was a Teen Cribs for teenagers, of course. If you wanted to take a tour of Mariah Carey's penthouse or Camelo Anthony's country estate, you just needed to catch an episode of Cribs. And if you want to see God's crib, you need to turn to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. For here the Apostle John takes us on a tour of the king of the universe's crib. The curtain separating time from eternity pulls back and the door to heaven swings open. And this is what we find, verse 1. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now, here's a few questions to ask. First, John is about to be shown things which must take place after this. What, then, is the this? Well, for the last two chapters in Revelation, we've been discussing the church. What John sees from here on apparently takes place after the church age. And since we are the church, the plagues depicted in chapters 6 through 19 called Great Tribulation are still future, which leads to another question. If all this happens after the church age, what happens to the church? Well, John is a member of the church, and look at what happens to him. Heaven's door opens. There's the sound of a trumpet, and he's invited to come up. That sounds like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When Jesus descends in the clouds and snatches to heaven his church. I believe Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 is a picture of the rapture. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the term church is used 19 times. But not once does the word appear in chapters 6 through 19. You see, the New Testament teaches that before judgment comes down... The church goes up. Jesus catches away his church. The church is in heaven when great tribulation rocks this wicked world, and John is included in the church. It's from heaven's press box now that John is going to report on the future. First, though, he describes his surroundings in chapters 4 and 5. He takes us on a tour of the king's crib. John starts in verse 2. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. Now, note, all this happened immediately. So often we think of the rapture as a slow ascent. You know, our feet suddenly feel light. We have liftoff. You know, we're dodging birds and planes and as we're floating through the clouds. That, that's not how the Bible describes it. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52 tells us the rapture occurs in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's immediate. Did you know a blink of an eye takes one fiftieth of a second? One fiftieth of a second, that's a blink. That's pretty fast, but a twinkle is even faster. And a twinkling of an eye suddenly will be with the Lord. John was taken to heaven immediately. And when he opened his eyes, he tells us what he saw. Behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. Now, Now understand this, John is in heaven. Imagine what he could have written about. Streets of gold, saints of old, mysteries untold. But none of that grabs John's attention. John's eyes are fixated on a centerpiece. Everything in heaven revolves around a throne and its occupant. Listen to John's description. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. Jasper sparkles like a diamond. Sardius is ruby red. In other words, vivid colors are bursting from the throne of God. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. A rainbow provides the whole spectrum of color. Here it's framed in an emerald green circle. You know, on earth we're treated to half rainbows, but in heaven a circular rainbow surrounds God's throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones or many thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel and Isaiah received a similar vision of heaven, but John sees something that the Hebrew prophets didn't, these elders. Ephesians 3 tells us that the church was hidden from the prophets. It was a mystery. This is why the elders here are absent from the Old Testament visions of heaven. They spoke of the church clothed in the white robes of the righteousness of Christ. You know, the New Testament teaches us that all believers will one day reign and rule with Jesus. Perhaps God rotates his elders in heaven like we do here at Calvary Chapel. Maybe we'll all get an opportunity to sit in one of those thrones. And notice the crown of gold on their heads. This is the Greek word Stephanos, not the kingly crown, but the victor's crown. It was the Olympic wreath placed on the champion, the one who had prevailed. These crowns are rewards that Jesus passes out to his faithful servants. The New Testament mentions various crowns as an incentive for us to serve. We can win a crown. And it's vital that we do, as we'll see a little later. Verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Notice God's throne is not a quiet, peaceful refuge. No, it's a charged atmosphere. Color radiates. Energy pulsates. It's as if the throne is plugged into an outlet that's sending at high voltage current. Lightning cracks and thunder rolls and voices shout. And seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, we see this. Uh, As we talked about in chapter 1, the seven spirits could mean the sevenfold ministry of the one Holy Spirit. And then before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. A huge body of motionless water sort of stretched out before God's throne. Imagine the acoustics that could have created. As the lightning and the thunder and the voices reflected off the water. This was a sensory experience unrivaled by anything John had experienced on earth. Even today, all the pyrotechnics in the world couldn't have reproduced the scene. Here's a color and light show complete with surround sound. God's throne is like an overheated reactor. It's boiling and rumbling and glowing and sparking and growling. You know, where did we ever get the idea that heaven is boring and drab? that it's a labyrinth of sterile white hospital corridors or a bank of puffy, fluffy, cumulus clouds. Nothing could be further from the truth. In heaven, in God's crib, everything explodes with color and light and sound. And John doesn't just describe the appearance of God's throne. He also is impressed with the activity going on around the throne. There's perpetual motion. Heaven is eye-popping and its feet hopping. No one stands idle with his hands in his pockets. No one's twiddling his thumbs in heaven. No one in heaven is bored or confused about what to do. Heaven is consumed with one activity. John reports it in verse 6. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Here's a creature with a head on a swivel. It never dozes off. It never takes a nap. Its eyes stay locked on the target. You know, it's interesting to me that what has all been forgotten by the vast majority of people on earth, the throne of God, is all these creatures care to gaze about. Not once do they tune in the news. Notice that. Or catch the scores or see how their stocks are doing. Or check Facebook or Twitter. Did you notice that? Not once. They are solely mesmerized by God's glory. At the time of this vision, John was still very much a citizen on earth. He had earthly ties, but when he, what he sees in heaven is so stunning that all he thinks about, I'm sure, for days was God in his throne. When he returned from heaven to Patmos, I can promise you he never saw life again in the same way as he had done before. The world is a jungle out there, but it isn't nearly as foreboding or appealing once you realize that Jesus is the king of the jungle. Well, the living creatures that John sees not only have eyes in front and in back, but they have faces. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. These four faces represent attributes of God. Here's a four-by-four advertisement for the glory of God. God is like a lion with power and majesty. He's like a calf. He's a beast of burden for service and sacrifice. He's like a man. That is, he has intellect and creativity, and he's like an eagle in that he soars above the earth and reigns over all his creation. It's interesting the Gospels also paint the same picture of Jesus. Matthew depicts Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king. Mark, the ox, the suffering servant. Luke, the perfect man. And John, the sovereign son of God. Verse 8 continues, The four living creatures, each having six wings, we're full of eyes around and within. You know, the Bible speaks of two types of angels, cherubim and seraphim. Both are warriors. Both are ferocious, furious, uh, fearsome creatures. You know, Ezekiel saw cherubim with four faces, like in verse 7. Isaiah saw seraphim with six wings, as in verse 8. Here, the four living creatures that John sees have both features. These living creatures seem to be angelic special ops that guard God's throne. This is heaven's secret service. And notice their movement. It's ceaseless. They're always on duty. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They praise God constantly. Three times they shout holy in deference to the triune God. And they acknowledge his timelessness. God dwells outside the time domain. It's not just that he has lots of time. He is outside of time. He is the God of the past. History is his story. He's the God of the present. He's the great I am. And he's the God of the future. The world is headed to a climax that serves his purposes. He was and is and is to come all at the same time. Heaven is full of activity, and John notes that it's not all spontaneous. Rather, it's a synchronized response. He describes the ordered orderliness in verse 9. He says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. I mean, that's the cue. When those living creatures start giving glory, at that very moment, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. There's a lot here, but let me just say, the priority of heaven is the worship of God. How many of you want to go to heaven? Good. That's encouraging. You all want to go to heaven. Well, if you're going to be comfortable in heaven, you need to learn to worship. We're all going to be worshipers. The priority of heaven is the worship of God. And notice, worship in heaven isn't just passive. Notice these elders, they fall on their faces. They lift up their voices. Sadly, I've been to churches that you'd think were a morgue. Their worship is like an old, tired hound dog who rarely budges. In contrast, heaven is like an energetic puppy. There's expectation and enthusiasm and lots of joy. Doggone it, guys. When we worship, we need to be like puppies. Worship is not a time on your weekly schedule. It's not an event you attend. It's not a program of the church. Worship is a verb. It's something you do. It's our response to God. Worship is heaven's most serious business. And notice these elders. They cast their crowns before the throne. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that one day all believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ where their motives, the motives behind their deeds will be tested. Did we serve the Lord unselfishly or were we only promoting ourselves? These crowns will be rewarded accordingly. But notice here what the elders do with their crowns. They cast them before the throne in worship. You know, I've heard some Christians say, you know, when I arrive in heaven, I'm just going to be glad I got there. I'm not going to be too worried about whether I have a reward or not. But that's a very short-sighted perspective. Imagine yourself in heaven. You see the king in all his glory. You behold his incredible throne. You see the nail prints in his hands and the scars on his brow. And you're overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for you. Expressing your gratitude is now your utmost desire. And then out of the corner of your eye, you see one of those elders casting down their crowns. You think, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll show how grateful to Jesus I am by giving him one of my crowns. But what if you have no crown? How frustrating will it be to finally have the opportunity to give to Jesus a little of the love he's given to you, and you find yourself empty-handed? I can't imagine a more frustrating situation. Hey, that's why gaining crowns by serving Jesus isn't a selfish activity. It's ultimately an act of worship. And then verse 11 tells us the elders cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. I love the old King James Version here. It says, Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Here's why we were created. To please God. We were created for His pleasure. You know, you'll never figure out where you're going in life until you first accept why you exist. You exist to bring pleasure to God. The elders in heaven tell us that we were created for God's pleasure, and you need to listen to your elders. You've heard the phrase, I play, therefore I am. The idea being that life is all about leisure and fun and good times. But the motto is really one letter off. It should read, I pray, therefore I am. The real reason you exist is to fellowship with God, to bring him honor and pleasure. Think of a fish lying on the dock. It's drying up, it's dying. But put that fish into the stream and suddenly it comes back to life. And why? Fish were made for the water, not the land. And so it is with us. Apart from God, we're like a fish out of water, but get us in fellowship with God and we come to life. We were created for him and his worship. Chapter five, you know, a big part of the American dream is home ownership, but what if I told you that according to Revelation chapter five, owning your own property is a myth. Jesus holds the title deed to all of planet earth. The land acquisition that takes place here in chapter 5 supersedes all other real estate transactions. We can say we own our own parcel, but we're really just squatters. Revelation 5 revolves around seven S's. If you're taking notes, you should write these down. Seven S's. We see a scroll, we hear a sob. There's a sibling, there's seven seals, there's some scars, there are the supplications of the saints, and finally, there's a song, a new song. First, John sees a scroll, chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, the only other biblical reference to a sealed scroll is Jeremiah chapter 32, which was the title deed to a parcel of land. Ancient deeds were written on double-sided scrolls, or epistographs is what they were called. Written on the outside was a legal description of the property and its owner. The inside contained the covenants, or the terms required to take possession of the land. Often the scrolls were lengthy and bound at intervals with wax seals. This scroll has seven seals. When property changed hands and the price was paid, the seals were broken. The parcel belonged to the new owner, but the breaking of the seals disclosed the steps that he had to follow to take possession of the land. That this scroll appears in heaven tips us off to its significance. God is holding this scroll. This is an important deal. A very strategic real estate transaction is about to take place. A deed is about to change hands. Verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it, so I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll, or to look at it, we see a scroll, and now John sobs, because no one is worthy to enforce this deed, all real estate deals are agonizing ordeals, ever closed on a house, A house closing requires tedious detail. Weeks on end. There's a mountain of paperwork. It's enough to make anybody sob. Yet John's sobbing here is a bit different than ours. It's not the process that causes him to weep. It's what's at stake. You can't overestimate the value of this parcel. I believe, like many Bible students, that the scroll in Revelation 5 verse 1 is actually the title deed to the universe. John is sobbing because he sees no one worthy to open this scroll and take possession back of God's creation. You know, when God created the heavens and the earth, he put the man and woman in a garden to till and cultivate and enjoy its fruit. They were given dominion, that is supremacy and control over all of God's creation. Remember in naming the animals, Adam and Eve expressed their authority over nature. You can't imagine the beauty of life in that garden. Work was no sweat, man inherited a perfect utopia. But when Adam and Eve rebelled, they wrecked paradise. Overnight, life devolved. Everything under man's dominion began to buck against their authority. Creation became subject to randomness. Mother Nature went nuts. Illness and natural disasters began to plague us. And ever since then, Satan has had a field day. Now blind to God and the things of God, Satan preys on man's ignorance. We're easily snookered and deceived. And Satan has easily wrestled the world from man's control. This is why in John 12, verse 31, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. Satan is a usurper. When man divorced himself from God, the devil stole control of the neighborhood. Today, our world lies in his clutches. And this explains the hot mess that life on this earth has become. Our fallen condition is not God's fault. See, if you've blamed God for disease or crime, or injustice, or war. Friend, you owe him an apology. Our world today is not as God created it to be. It was made perfect, then gifted to man. It was man that then lost it and forfeited it to Satan. And this is why John sobs. I like the paraphrase of verse 4. One translation puts it, I weep and weep." And weep. We understand, don't we? Remember, it was a strong angel who offered the challenge. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? This is perhaps an archangel. But he can't open the scroll. If strong angels are out, then who's left? Any human hero is certainly a step down. Verse 3 makes it official. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. No wonder John cries like a baby. Reminds me of the newlyweds with very little money. They were out shopping for their first house. When they told the realtor how much money they made, they asked, they said, do you think that you have a house in our price range? The agent replied, oh, yes, its current owner is a German shepherd named Prince. And this is why John sobs profusely. All mankind is in the doghouse. Which brings us to the third S, the sibling. For God knew that mankind would foolishly throw away his dominion. So he embedded in his law, in the laws of Israel, a redemption provision. Every land transaction came with a clause. The original owner had the right to buy back the land if he could afford a redemption price. You see, in ancient Israel, family land was lost in two ways. The owner would die without an heir, or the land was used as collateral on an unpaid loan. In both cases, before the family lost permanent ownership a sibling had the right to step in and redeem the land on behalf of the family. This relative was known as a goel, or as a sibling redeemer. See, John knew these laws of redemption, and thus he's scanning heaven for a rich relative, someone who can buy back God's creation from Satan's control. When he finds no one, he fears that this fallen world will be stuck In its fallen state. And that's why he weeps. That's why he sobs. But that's when John gets good news. Verse 5. But one of the elders said to me. Do not weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. Has prevailed. To open the scroll. And to loose its seven seals. There is a person who qualifies. Who has prevailed. A lion from Judah is able and qualified to bankroll the scroll. Realize Revelation 5 verse 5 is one of the most strategic moments in the history of the world. The opportunity to retrieve our fallen planet is about to expire when suddenly one emerges who can right all wrongs and redeem what's been lost. Jesus had the right pedigree. He was our sibling redeemer. Jewish kings came from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. Jesus was a lion from the right pride. He was a limb from the right trunk. He had the credentials. He was our rich relative. Through his perfect life and his sacrificial death, he earned enough equity and righteousness to pay all the debts that our sin had caused. Jesus was able to pop the scroll and loose the seals. Which brings us to the fourth S. What about those seven seals? See, Jesus doesn't just open the scroll. He breaks the seals in doing so. These little wax seals bound up the deed. See, it's one thing to buy back a piece of land, but it's quite another issue to force the person living on it to vacate the premises. Thus, breaking the seven seals are the necessary steps toward evicting the squatter which is satan i heard of a homeless man who pitched his tent in the front yard of the public library he liked the the library thought was kind of nice living out there so he decided to stay put well the city tried to negotiate a peaceful relocation for the man he refused this is the library you don't live at the library it's not your library When negotiations failed, the man was removed by force. But what if you had been en route to the library that morning when you saw the police manhandling this poor homeless fellow? I mean, you'd want to cry, police brutality, unless you knew the story. And this is why chapter 5 is crucial to what happens in the rest of the Revelation. Jesus is going to rough up this rebel planet. He's going to evict Satan and his demons and the legions of rebellious humans who join their coup d'etat. And each time Jesus pops a seal in heaven, sparks are going to fly on earth. Terrible judgments are going to be unleashed. And every time you shudder with horror at those judgments, I want you to remember Revelation chapter 5. Don't forget it. For Jesus has the right to do that. Jesus holds the title. He holds the deed. Our world rightly belongs to him. See, today he is negotiating a peaceful resolution. If you're squatting, if you've yet to surrender to his authority and his rule, he's opened the door for you. You can make peace with him today. You can come to him and know him. He'll extend his forgiveness and his love. A peaceful negotiation is currently underway But there's coming a time when those negotiations are going to end. And Jesus is going to eliminate all who stand in the way of His rule. Again in verse 5, the elder refers to the sibling, our Redeemer, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. A lion. The lion is considered the king of beasts, is he not? Have you ever been to the zoo and just watched the lion swagger as he walks? The other animals, they quiver in fear when they hear him roar. Examine his jaws, his teeth, the sweep of his paws. A lion is a picture of courage and power and dominance and agility and ferociousness. And he is a perfect type of our Lord Jesus. There's an excerpt from the fiction of C.S. Lewis. Lucy is talking to the beavers about this lion, Aslan. She asks, who is Aslan? This surprises Mr. Beaver. He says, don't you know? He's the king, the lord of the whole wood. Lucy replies, is he safe? I'll feel quite nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver jumps in. That you will, dearie. Anyone who appears before Aslan without their knees knocking is either braver than most or just silly. Again, Lucy asks, but is he safe? That's what Mr. Beaver utters. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And revelation proves that Jesus isn't a tame lion. Jesus will one day bring evil men to their knees. Safe? Not hardly. Not if you're on the wrong side. He'll finally clean up the mess we've made on this earth. The righteous judge will bring to order a universe that's in contempt. Notice another S. It's a surprise. Jesus takes the scroll, he ends the sob, he is the sibling, he breaks the seals, but whatever you do, don't miss the scars. For the elder calls Jesus a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when John turns his head, we're told in verse 6, and I looked, and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb As though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Horns are a symbol of strength. Seven eyes speak of his omnipresence. He's empowered with the sevenfold anointing of the one Holy Spirit. This is the king we're talking about. But surprise, surprise, this lion, when John looks to the lion, he sees a lamb. The lion looks like a lamb. In fact, the word translated lamb is little lamb. Mary had a little lamb, and he's now the conqueror, the roaring lamb. You know, lambs or sheep are the most talked about animals in all the Bible, but usually in connection with sacrifice. In fact, a river of blood flowed from the temple. The only way that Israel could come before God was through a sacrifice. And all those sacrifices were leading to the ultimate, perfect, permanent sacrifice. John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Imagine now the drama we find here in chapter 5. God's Son steps up to take back the deed to His creation. To open the seals of judgment upon the earth. Heaven and its angels have always known Jesus as the lion. But here he appears as a sacrifice lamb. If I ask you, what are the only man-made things in heaven? You should answer, the scars of Jesus. The scars of Jesus. After the resurrection, the Bible says Jesus' disciples saw the scars in his hands and the hole in his side. And if those scars were visible, why not all of his scars? How about the scars on his brow made from the crown of thorns that sat on his head? Isaiah tells us prophetically that they plucked out Jesus' beard. How badly did that disfigure his face? Could this be why Mary saw the risen Lord and didn't recognize him? She mistook him as the gardener. Isaiah 52, verse 14, prophesies of Jesus. His visage was more marred, was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Hebrew scholars Kiel and Delish translate that verse so disfigured, his appearance was not human, and his form not like that of the children of men. In other words, he was beaten beyond recognition. I believe when our Lord Jesus was taken off the cross, his face looked like it belonged to a fighter who'd gone 15 rounds in a slugfest. His body was torn and tethered as if in a devastating airplane crash. See, if there had been a funeral, trust me, it would have been closed casket. Thus, when John sees Jesus, he expects a lion, yet there stood a lamb as though it had been slain. And I think we too will one day be shocked. Our first look into Jesus' face will not be what we thought. Brace yourself for his scars. And yet it won't take long before those scars become a source of pride and a catalyst for praise. For his scars will be our eternal reminder of the Savior's great love for us. Here's the revelation of Jesus. He still bears the scars of his sacrifice, but the lion suffers no more. There's now fire in his eyes. There's a roar from his throne. Hands that cradled babies and opened blind eyes now break open seals that wreak havoc on the earth. Here's where John's faith matured. In heaven today, God's throne is called the mercy seat. But soon, that same throne will be a judgment seat. John knew Jesus as he once was, the Lamb. But now and forever, Jesus is more than a sacrifice. He is the king of the jungle. Before this revelation, John's faith was probably a lot like our fragile faith. He quibbled over life's illnesses and injustices. Oh, how can a good God... Allow bad stuff. But after this vision, I bet he stopped his quibbling. He stopped wondering and doubting. For John knows now that soon, very soon, righteousness will prevail. Our fractured world will be reset. Evil will be punished and faith rewarded. From now on, John hangs not only his hopes for his own soul, but for the whole world on the roaring land. And John joins the heavenly host in verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Here's another S, the supplications or the requests of the saints. Realize your prayers do matter, friend. You know, at times it's hard for us to see that truth from our current vantage point. But here we get a glimpse of heaven, God's throne. And guess what's there? A bowl full of your prayers. Don't say the prayers that you've hoisted up to God have gotten lost in the shuffle. Don't say they've never been heard or really don't matter. Or they've been ignored. To the contrary, God has placed angels and elders in charge of your prayers. He keeps them in close proximity to His throne. And later, God will address this bowl of prayers. Eventually, every cry for justice and deliverance and blessing and peace, even retribution, is answered by God. But in His way and in His time, not our own. And notice the final S a song, a new song. You know, it's so true. In the end, every prayer will become a praise. It may take 10 years, 10,000 years, but it'll happen. Verse 9 tells us, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Who is this in heaven singing? Who but the church could sing such a song? Who else fits this description? Redeemed out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation. This isn't Israel. Only Jesus' blood-bought church can sing this song of redemption. This means that when the seals are broken, in essence, when the gloves come off and God pummels the earth with judgment, the church is in heaven singing God's praise. Verse 11 and 12, Then I looked and and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. In other words, there were too many angels to count. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Notice heaven is most amazed not by the lion's claws or his paws or his teeth or his roar, but by his scars. For time eternal, whenever we see his scars, we'll bow and declare, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And the worship never grows silent in heaven. About the time one voice begins to fade, another erupts. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, all creation now joins heaven in adoring the Lamb. I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Here's what I think. I think it's time to stop our quibbling. Yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, life isn't always fair. Injustices occur, accidents happen, disasters strike, life doesn't always turn out the way we'd hoped. But a grown-up faith realizes that there's a roaring lamb in heaven worthy to rule and that he's about to return with a deed in his hand to settle the score and to take what's his. We need to stop wondering and worrying and start worshiping. John's few moments in heaven taught him to remember those scars. But don't stop there. Don't just see Jesus as he once was. See him as he will be. John learned to hang all of his hopes for a better life and for a better world on Jesus, the roaring lamb.